Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mind podcast, brought to you by the team at Marketing Magazine and powered by our friends at Something Else. My name's Rachel Barnes and I'm the editor of Marketing. And in the Marketing Mind podcast, we're going to be discussing what we think are the big ideas and unusual connections out there in our marketing world. Today, we're talking about the future of food and why scarcity might soon be changing our tastes. I'm joined by Sam Bompas, one half of Bompas and Part, also Shona Ghosh, our senior reporter. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Sam, uh, how, how do you become a jelly architect? So, I mean, we started with jelly just um, because we wanted something fun to do on the weekend. And we thought we'd get a stall at Borough Market and jelly would hold the key. We very quickly went from there to having a full catering company and putting on these enormous events. And, mm. and we didn't really realise it at the time, just because the problems inherent with jelly and our, our, our lack of um, professional culinary training that would use every trick we knew how to, um, everything from working with scientists, engineers, um, animal handlers, lighting designers, magicians, um, to give people a compelling food-based experience. We found that that actually what we're doing was creating immersive or experiential events. They weren't they weren't called that at the time, but now um, in hindsight, we can see that, that that was what they were. And how how does the company compare then to what it is now in terms of you know your partner and you know the, just the size of the company now? Uh, so now it's a company of uh, twenty people full time, and then sort of seven bar staff, and um, we work on everything from uh, you know some of the world's biggest brands, um, so everyone from uh, Diageo to Cargill to sort of Mondelez. Mercedes to working with a lot of a lot of the world's top art galleries as well. So you know people like San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Garage, uh, Mam in Sao Paulo, the Barbican here in the UK. Sounds like you're busy. We, we have a lot of fun <laughs> doing it. It's it's a, it's a merry caper. <laughs> Just back to Shona now. Um, you've been eating insects. Uh, is that right? I haven't been eating insects. Oh, right. Not recently. Okay. Not recently. I've been I've been interviewing two guys or one guy actually. Um, a sort of co-founding team who are behind uh, a new protein bar, nutrition bar that mm-hmm. features insect protein because they believe it's going to be the future of nutrition. Um, I did eat insects kind of two years ago when I was in the Amazon. It was yeah. pretty crunchy. I hear you've been eating insects uh, too in well, the past. I've, I've done that. I think most people have kind of have chocolate covered ants before and you get the you get the kind of skeleton bit stuck in your teeth and it's a bit gross, but that, that's my experience of it. What about you, Sam? Have you any insects? Um, gosh, I had insects last night. I was on, <laughs> wow, really? I was on a, I was on a panel um, discussing the future of food. And of course, when the future of food comes up, um, insects often are, are, are waggled in front of everyone. Um, and in fact, I woke up this morning and, and um, found myself with some insect pasta in my bag, oh. um, which I... Uh, uh, thought about eating for a minute and then um, decided <laughs> that in a world where we don't need to get our protein from insects, yeah. perhaps there are countless other um, options. But it is uh, it is obviously a serious issue as well. And, um, you know, food scarcity is certainly on the agenda globally. Um, many politicians, many countries are looking at it. And that's with the population explosion that the world is facing. With a, I think by 2050, the worldwide population could be 10.9 billion which, uh, just to put into context, it's 7.6 billion now. Yeah. And it was 1 billion, I think, 200 years ago. So uh, it's a lot of land required to profit uh, a lot of, exactly. produce a lot of animal feed. Well, apparently to meet that population explosion, 
food will actually uh, food production will have to increase by 70% by 2050 just to meet current estimates so i mean something has to change for the current situation yes and i think also along with boosting food production it's also thinking about the way um that we get people the right nutrients so for example we rely on um cattle for example everyone eats sort of cows and beef and steak and whatnot to uh, to get that protein but with that population we'll have to think about alternative ways of getting our protein because it's very resource intensive to produce that much meat so one alternative is as we mentioned insects and i was speaking to one startup that's thinking about using insect-based protein as an alternative. So they are called Crowbar Protein. And I spoke to Stefan Thoritsen, who's one of the co-founders. They're based in Iceland, and I spoke to them over the phone. Um, and they're just going to explain a little bit about the project they're working on. So we're making nutritional powder that's called Jungle Buff. And it's made with seeds, fruits, like uh, dates and uh, uh, cranberries and chocolates, and then cricket flour. And it looks like a normal kind of uh, energy bar. What it tastes like is kind of, it's, it depends on people, but it's the strong flavor is of the chocolate and the cranberries, I would say. The cricket flour, the insect ingredient that we use, it, it doesn't have a uh, very strong taste of it. So mm. you kind of overpower the insect taste with the other ingredients. Mm, it kind of begs the question, why do you need the cricket flour in there if we've got all these other lovely ingredients? Just for the protein aspect. So he'll sort of go on to tell us about how much protein there is in there. But for them, it's that's the sell, I guess. Icelandic food is not known for its excellence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, disclaimer, that's not the view of the marketing magazine. <laughs> Flavours or what's the... It's just it's not sort of famous around the world for its... Well, kind of in London, we're pretty we're pretty open about uh, the new sort of foods and willingness to explore. But um, there's not a lot of sort of fermented fish and um, yeah, hitting our menus. Maybe maybe it's the next big thing. Who knows? Mm. Maybe maybe mm. they're sort of graduating into cricket flour based protein bars. Something they see currently um, being mass- a mass market product. Exactly. So at the moment, they're very much an education and publicity drive, um, mm-hmm. and they do very much hook it around the fact that it's quite a good source of protein yeah where do they get the cricket flour from then how does that they got this kind of industrial warehouse with um cricket the cricket and then grinding them up and mm. then sort of sticking them straight into a bar no it's, it's quite complicated the whole sort of producing insects for for eating industry it's a mm. small yet growing economy um so they don't actually farm the crickets themselves but source them from from other farms mm. so in the next clip um stefan will tell us a little bit about why they decided not to go down the farming cricket route and more down the protein bar route okay first we wanted to uh farm the insect ourselves but we found out that that would be very complicated because there were people that had you know dedicated a lot of their time creating these cricket farms for human consumption and if we would go into this right now, it would take us maybe years until we had something that we could use. So instead of farming the insects ourselves, we could just go to other guys who are doing it much better than we could do in a short time. And we found these farms, uh, maybe three or four last years that we found, and we ordered some samples and just figured out you know, uh, which one we wanted to use in our products. And we created some prototypes of the protein bar that we are very soon going to launch to the market. I can see the uh, 
you know, why people are using insects potentially as a protein source. But is it really just a kind of a faddy novel food, Sam? Do you think there's, is there, is there more to it than, than you know, just a, a quick bit of PR to sell your product? I think there are a lot of interesting elements with it. So, I mean, if you actually look at it, we all in the UK consume about half a kilo of insects ourselves. Really? Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's, in, it's in the food. Like the, the um, FSA's regulations mean you can have, um, I think, one maggot in each uh, <laughs> carton mm. of orange juice quite happily. Mm, um, so, you know, we're, we're not aware of it, but uh, a lot of insect protein does get into our diets anyway. But I, I, I would, would suggest that we probably don't want to be aware of it. And in um, mm. Asian cultures they, where they eat insects, that's fine. There are some enormous sense of taboos that we need to overcome to get it into our diet. But I think where perhaps it might be a little bit more useful in um, sorting out this this impending <laughs> doomsday scenario yeah. that we're talking about um, is is perhaps putting it into um, uh, animal diets where animals mm. are less fussy um, and also responsible for, for, for a lot of those. If we want to eat animals, they're incredibly energy inefficient. Um, so it's a good and good way to get it into the diet and perhaps um, solve mm. some of those problems we're talking about. Yeah. And that, that said, those problems that you're talking about are something that for the last 200 years, we've always been worried that we're always going to starve. Um, yeah. It's sort of known Human as sort of nature. Like, well, it's, it's, it's just sort of uh, the work of Thomas Malthus says that there are these sort of population checks that can come into play and have a disastrous effect on society. And we mm. always think it's about to happen with sort of war and pestilence and, and starvation. <laughs> um, the actual fact is it happens rather less than um, we always think because humans are pretty ingenious about figuring out ways to um, get round it. The other thing as well is that, that if it does happen, is that such a bad thing? And, and this is this mm. maybe controversial, but you know, obviously you had the Black Death sweeping across Europe, annihilating a third of the population, um, which was probably unanimously seen as being a very bad thing. Yeah, but I'd the, agree with that. <laughs> well, but, at, but at the same time, it led to the, um, the emancipation of the peasants. So with a third less labourers, um, you know, the, the, the farm labourers were able to renegotiate their relationship with their lords hmm. um, and move from a, a, a rather brutish short life to a slightly less brutish and yeah. still quite short life. It's interesting um, that you mentioned the thought of insects as, as animal feed rather than human feed, um, just because I think you're right. As you say, there's a disgust barrier, but also we're looking at, you know, the main problem here is is how to, you know, produce protein sustainably and at the moment we're using up a lot of land basically producing um, soy to feed pigs for example and in China where there's a a rising middle class and porks um, seen as this real luxury meat and as sort of more people kind of gain more wealth they eat pork on a more regular basis without much thought as to you know how to do that sustainably and in fact they're actually you know China's responsible for importing more than half the world's feed crops wow yeah it's crazy isn't it just to feed the pigs yeah most of Argentina's soy produce is going to feed Chinese pigs wow yeah it's crazy isn't it yeah that's incredible when you think of those numbers it just it just puts it into perspective doesn't it do you think there's perhaps more of a, a, a rather more than an impending sort of pestilence or <laughs> um, asteroid sort of comet hit with Earth kind of due? Do you think maybe it's going to be a big culture change? Just because in terms of what I read, obviously the, the problem here is protein. So, but where Western consumers might be a bit more alert to the fact that maybe we need to 
introduce a bit more vegetarianism into our diets, um, you know, a booming middle class Chinese economy doesn't really care so much about that. So do you think food habits will just change drastically in terms of one side of the world to the other in that on this side, we will become a lot more sort of hippie-ish almost in our eating habits. But these kind of new emerging economies might be kind of a bit less conscious of what they're eating. And so there'll be this kind of difficult balance. Well, I think I think food habits are changing dramatically already. Um, and I think there's a driving factor for this um, that is, is perhaps not the sense of personal responsibility, although it's great when, when people have that, and, and, and also even the shared sense of responsibility that we hope that um, our governments and our, our cultural commentators, people like Jamie Oliver, are trying to, to instill in us. And I think um, actually one of the real driving factors is vanity. And mm. if you look at what's happened over the last, uh, you know, since the introduction of social media, um, people are drinking less in our society. They're eating healthier. And I'd argue a lot of that is down to the fact that they want to look good in their pictures or certainly look less embarrassed in their pictures. Then you, the selfie phenomenon. So people are more conscious of their appearance. And because of that, it's the, the food and how they're exercising. So that's having an effect on the way people view food. Is that what you mean? Well, look at the food heroes for our time um, that are in the press at the moment. Um, you know, sort of is it the Hemsey sisters, um, you know, the wonderful uh, Ella. Um, you know, they are not eating in uh, the same way we once would have eaten. They're very conspicuously consuming uh, more green food, less meat. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think this is, it's, it's just endemic or, or um, you know, certainly uh, symptomatic of the way that things are changing. Mm-hmm. I took I took this question to to Stefan or something along along the same lines where I sort of did ask him whether it's going to be sort of the protein bar can, you know because people already eat protein bars mm, but it's of kind of gym bunnies and you know it's popular in a in a sort of niche section of the population and I I did ask him whether he thought it will mm. kind of stay um with a niche section of the population of people who are quite health oriented um so in the next clip he sort of talks about where he thinks it could sort of sit with the wider population people are maybe going to, you know, buy one bar and have a taste. And not everyone is going to buy it again. But we are certain that because we have these great products, you know, with or without insects, it's a great nutritional bar that is free from dairy, soy, gluten, and peanuts. And, you know, has all these great nutrients in them. People are going to see that, you know, okay, this is not that big of a deal. I could buy insects again. But, of course... In the beginning, it's going to take some time and not everyone is going to buy it to begin with. Yeah, I, th- I think that in the future, insects could become a, you know, a huge mainstream. Feels like that's a little unlikely in the Western world. I, I just can't get past the, the, the faddy nature of it. Where m- maybe in emerging nations where the scarcity is, is perhaps more prevalent in, right now, I could see it. But... And tastes are different as well mm. and that we just have that whole disgust factor going on and you know mexico for example they, they sort of love their butterfly larvae that's that's a thing but you know it's not seen as such a problem so you know in the way that maybe we don't see doritos as a problem they're just like oh doritos they're rubbish <laughs> let's have some butterfly larvae instead you know, so I, you know i said I'd, I'd actually love to taste the bar because i feel like we're doing um stuff and a little bit of a disservice by not having one here <laughs> in the studio that we could, that we could feast true. on and I, and I think that there's something to be said as well. We as humans can grow to enjoy any flavour under the sun. So no one is born liking the taste of coffee or liking alcohol. In fact, our, our bodies revolt against these substances. And it's only through 
um, forcing them down over time, that we become acclimatised and then grow to love them. It also helps that they're addictive. And so perhaps um, we'll learn to lust after the uh, taste of insects. I just think it's improbable um, mm. in the near future. And I think there are, there are many other trends that bear uh, scrutiny mm-hmm. uh, ahead of this. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, I think, I think um, you know, maybe trends is the wrong word, but they're things mm. that, that I'm certainly more excited by. Um, you know, rather than, for example, insect protein, uh, maybe she'd be looking at um, the work that's been happening around in vitro meat. And you know, certainly, um, why on earth would you ever go through all the, the terrors, the traumas and, and the, ho- the real life horrors of animal husbandry and, and, and farming mm. um, if you could get those same delicious flavours through growing it in the lab. And I, I'm really rather excited about that, not just from um, an ethical standpoint, but also from a creative point as well. And um, you know, what can you do when you are, we're able to really start targeting genetic material and being creative with it? Of course, at the moment, it's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, what, what happens if, um, you know, we've just sent a sequence, for example, mammoth DNA. So oh, you know, really? imagine you could feast like Neolithic man on a, a mammoth steak. <laughs> I know, a, lot, I, a large source of protein, for sure. I yeah. thought I would be, be delighted by it. But also no mammoths are harmed in, a, in the making yeah. of it at all because it's grown in the lab. How far off do you think something like that is? Obviously, like you say, it's illegal right now. But is it, is it inevitable that that will, will come, come to fall? Well, there, there are certain humans alive at the moment who have tasted mammoth, mm. although it's not lab-grown mammoths. They've, they've just apparently, um, in the nefarious world of prehistoric digs, when they've been thawing out a bit of mammoth meat, um, have just had a little pinch just to see what it's <laughs> like. Really? That doesn't sound true. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's all, it's all rumours. Yeah, but it's, um, yeah. I do think that you know, certainly in the um, uh, genetics world, that there's debate around now that we've sequenced mammoth DNA, could we combine it with uh, elephants and create a live mammoth for our zoo? And, and for me, the first thing, question that I ask is, can I eat it? <laughs> yeah. Do you think um, brands are exploring this kind of stuff? Just because when I was doing a bit of wider research around the, the protein bars and the, the insect-based protein bars. Um, some other startups, I think there's another protein bar called Exo, who are sort of getting bigger in the US, again, among a certain population. But they mentioned they're in sort of talks with Unilever and PepsiCo, and I don't necessarily know if they've gone anywhere, but obviously there are some brands who are thinking at least about the, the future of food and future taste and so on. So where do you think sort of the big brands are exploring? Do you think, you know, it's very much an R&D project for them or... Are they kind of taking, you know, the future of food tastes, these kind of quite extreme examples, quite seriously? Well, I think big brands obviously stand a lot to gain from calling the market in the right way and invest enormously in looking at the future of food. Um, Perhaps they're not going as extreme as um, looking at manipulating DNA. I would probably hope they're not for their (laughs) sake because it would be an enormous PR disaster if anyone found out. Um, But I I do think that... um, they are looking at a lot of interesting applications of technology. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly um, we've seen uh, you know all, all the mysteries and wonders of three D printing plumbed uh, for all their worth in in various guises. Um, when we started out making jelly, we mm. were we were um, uh, making all the molds through th- sort of three D printing, and um, since been been along to people like Mars, people like Mondelez. Um, and said, I also asked, what are you excited by at the moment? And quite often they're innovations guys. Oh, I've just got this 3D printer in. 
and um, you know, which is amazing because I sort of asked what what they're doing before. And they said, oh, we just had some guy in the village doing all our chocolate moulds for us. And <laughs> that was their form of rapid prototyping. So they're, they, are, they are innovating in this way. But of course, for me, um, you know, some of the stuff that I'm excited about is, um, you know, now that we know uh, a lot about people's DNA, can we start using that to code uh, very specific food products just for them? Wow, um, really? Can we... Uh, you know, if, you, if you have this sort of understanding of people's makeup and we know how important food is to uh, their health and well-being, mm. uh, can we move back to a sort of almost a Gallian philosophy of food? And Gallian was the Greek philosopher whose, whose ideas around food dominated, you know, Western thought right the way through to the Renaissance. Um, and he has this notion of, sort of humor, humoral balance where you're either uh, choleric, sanguine, you know, or a few other bits and pieces. And, and by balancing up your diet, you're able to make yourself a better person as oh, well as a healthier one. So you could have a melancholic diet, just, just you know, if you're a sad person, it would just be tailored to one of your few, four oh, that humans, sounds basically. Yeah, yeah it's sad, <laughs> well, sad course, food. Of course. And, 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 but I think, I think this, is, this is the way that um, people are now starting to think about their food, is by having the right diet mm. for them. Um, they can they can become a better person, and but I think this is this is this is one school of thought, which is mm. the, the sort of um, food as functionality or food as medicine that is starting to emerge. And I think the other side of it is counterbalanced by people thinking of food as entertainment yeah. as well. And, and that's really your uh, your modus operandi. Well, exactly. So we we are lucky enough to operate in um, you know, the the rich world. Um, where people are spending time and their money on food because they want a, an experience, they want a story mm-hmm. to tell their friends, they want things to articulate about themselves. And and this is really um, sees food as as it's become this leisure activity, it's become this form of conspicuous consumption where people are able to define their sense of identity through mm. sharing their food experiences on social media. Do you think that's come from, we're obviously talking about the scarcity of food potentially in the future do you think why you know some of the work you've been doing is so well received because there has in the past been this sort of scarcity of experience around food when it's looked at you know so i guess it's the fuel source versus the enjoyment and the guilt factor and just knowing you know you you don't have to feel guilty about really going out there and enjoying the wonders of food here in the uk there's been a cultural change which we've responded to really and um historically it was even rude to discuss food and this this comes <laughs> as almost a hangover to two world wars when all the food on everyone's table is pretty vile you, you know it becomes taboo to discuss the merits of it and bad manners at the table because um well it, it's going to be a pretty shocking conversation someone's going to be offended you know, now that we live in a world where the food can be pretty good, it, it really changes things. And, um, you know, I think with food now the most photographed uh, thing on the planet, yeah, apart from we know that. cats, I think maybe cats edges it, maybe, <laughs> or maybe it's food, I, I don't know exactly. It becomes this very, very important signifier of identity. And people might change, have, um, even with a very extensive wardrobe, um, they're going to run out of new looks to photograph very, very quickly. <laughs> Whereas... Um, Food is very different. You get new things to eat every day. So there's more opportunities to show what a what a classy, what an inspiring, what a creative, um, what a wonderful person you are. And uh, your latest project is the British Museum of Food. Is that right? Yeah. So we're currently working on the British Museum of Food at Borough Market, and I think this is endemic of um, how important uh, food is in the zeitgeist. We actually launched this, and we found out that just a week after launching the world's first museum dedicated entirely to, to the subject of, of food and its, its entire 
capacity, um, a similar museum is opening in New York. Wow. Mm. So, Copycats or, uh, you know, just great minds thinking alike? I, th- I, think, I think it just shows that it's, it's, it's part of the zeitgeist. So whereas before there were, um, you know, our inspiration really comes from the design museum, which 20 mm. years ago started off as a temporary exhibition that became a permanent exhibition at the V&A, moved through its permanent site, is now going to the Commonwealth Institute. You know, it's a, an epic of museum land. And we thought, well, gosh, how many people sit there throughout their day thinking about what chair they're going to sit down on when they get home? The answer is very few and a minuscule amount relative to the number of people that are planning their evening meal or strategizing where they're going out to their, to, to restaurants or what they're going to do for their weekend barbecue. And, and I think um, yeah, that's why there's really a, 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 the timers now for a, a food museum for actually both both troughs of food. So this is food as entertainment. You can go along, you can have a stimulating, immersive day out at the museum. Um, but also in terms of some of the more serious issues around food as well, um, in terms of having a, a serious body that can um, help inform government policy and also try and tackle those subjects like you know, global uh, food security and sustainability um, in terms of education in a fun and uh, engaging, inspiring way for kids. And uh, you've also been in the press a lot recently for your alcoholic um, cloud. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, the two are related. And we started speaking to Borough Market about um, opening the British Museum of Food. And uh, they've got a site for it, which is where we're opening the, the museum. And beneath it is where the bar is. And we're, we're cannily uh, subsidising, opening a, a new national cultural institution by um, uh, opening a bar, tapping into something that uh, is obviously very important to the national is, identity, yes. which is uh, drinking. Um, and with it, we wanted to do a, a bar that was sort of a immersive, engaging um, and stimulating, we grab people by the throat. And for that, it's got a, a breathable cloud of cocktail within it that intoxicates through the lungs and eyeballs. Wow. Of course, that's a, a gin and tonic, something's familiar to us all. And um, But there's it, also... Does it sting? Uh, no, not, not, not at all. So you get, you get quite used to it. But if you, we're as far apart as we are, which is about a metre away, we wouldn't be able to see each other at all because there'd be so much booze in the air between us. <laughs> But there are other elements as well. So there's a leucastic albino python and the ladies lose the gents. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm assured by my medium is haunted. And um, there's also you can drink from a human skull. Wow. That sounds like quite an experience, I have <laughs> to say. Just seriously, with insects, obviously your you know, experimentation and being creative is, is absolutely core to what you do and how, how you approach food. Would you consider looking more at insects and how you can incorporate that into into your creations? We've done lots with insects. I mean, even about four years ago, we did something called Taste-a-Rama, in which people got <laughs> to eat their way along to uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, of course, with this, um, you know, food is a very, very important signifier in the film. There's a lot of eating monkey's eyeballs and also insects as well. You could tell who the baddie was because they feasted with relish on the cockroaches. <laughs> and so we were serving up crickets with that. You know, it's actually we're serving them up to make the point about food taboos and how they're used to differentiate society, to express who we are and generate a sense of, sense of, self, sense of identity. Crickets are pretty, they can be pretty tasty. They're a bit like chips. Um, they'll take up whatever flavour you put them in. They're pretty brutal, to be honest, to uh, cook with. You get this you get this sort of hessian bag that's gently crepitating and sort of pulsating, mm. filled with live insects. Oh, gosh. And you've got to put them in the fridge 
And this sort of slows their metabolism down. They sort of quiet down. Then you, you sort of put them out of the baking tray, sprinkle them with oil, um, you know, a bit of chili powder as well, a um, bit of paprika, you know, a load of seasoning in there too. Then you put them in the, put them in the oven, slam the oven on, and, and, and they gradually start heating up. And there's one horrifying moment when all the insects wake up. And this is, oh, this is the humane way to do it. And the oven erupts. It starts juddering and shaking as they all sort of take off and try to escape. Um, oh, 20 minutes later, popcorn. they're done. Oh, really? <laughs> sort it of sounded, horrendous. Uh, I was almost kind of, my mouth was watering with the, the talk of the oil and the chilli. And then, no, no, it kind of went into nightmare Popping territory. Crickets. Yeah, it's, it's not ideal, is it? I know, yeah. I've got to say, it's, it's about as close as we've got to horror film cookery. Yeah. Did you, did you film insects. that? Just, just for the, the sound effects alone? <laughs> we drew a, 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 modest, a veil of modesty across the <laughs> Oh, poor things. The, protect the, protect the their dignity. But we, did, but we did celebrate their lives by eating them all. <laughs> well, that's that's one thing, and obviously experimentation, um, you know, is, is really is really important to you. And you were, you were mentioning about in vitro meat. When um, you know, when we're looking to the future, and we're looking at re- these resource intensive proteins, like you know, intensive intensive farms full of hundreds and thousands of cows, you know, will will the actual the steak as we know it become a you know a luxury for kings and queens and uh, you know, oligarchs, or and we'll be uh, we'll be kind of looking for our alternative protein sources. Do you think? I think I think one of the things is uh, everyone expects the food we eat to change very very dramatically. Um, you know, for myself, I think the basic unit of what we eat, and if you get people to do food diets, um, so food diaries, and they look back at them, they're horrified that the reality of what they're eating is pretty much been sort of burgers, steaks, pizzas. And you know, it doesn't change very rapidly. I think the thing that's changing more rapidly is is uh, the technology around it and the way that food um, becomes a, a way to define us. Um, I would imagine in an apocalyptic scenario, we'd still probably be eating burgers. They might, however, be rat burgers, um, as you see in Demolition Man. Do you think there's an onus on brands to um, take more responsibility there? I'm just thinking of, for example, McDonald's kind of famously is doing doing worse than it ever has done because the demand isn't sort of there so much for kind of slightly rubbish, sad, flat burgers. And people want really nice burgers because they can get them at quite a reasonable price in the pub or gourmet burger kitchen or wherever so mcdonald's is kind of feeling the effects of that and they've had to rethink the way that they source meat and how they present that meat so they've had to rethink how they market the burger and that's just one kind of really small example of how they've had to adapt to these you know as you say kind of minor changes in eating habits the one thing that's incredibly important that that brands have a, a very clear philosophy and they stick with that philosophy. And that, if that philosophy is absolutely at odds with their consumers, they're going to suffer. Um, that said, though, um, you've got a lot of brands who are selling up burgers that are perhaps slightly better, um, that are sort of uh, professed to be sort of meaty, juicy, totally over-the-top indulgent, and they're doing very, very well. I think one of, one of the other interesting elements as well is, is you know, in these debates about the future of food, brands are often seen as the villains out of the story, who are sort of like, you know, there's some, there's some dark, nefarious force um, trying to feed us worse, trying to cut corners, um, trying to, to, you know, just chase after the profit at all expenses. 
And in actual fact, if you, you know, the brands that I've worked with um, are actually at odds with it. These are some of the people that think more about food, that care more about food, that, co- that actually influence more what is going in people's mouths than anyone else. And, you know, are very passionate about that sort of custodianship. Well, getting that innovation right from their point of view, I mean, it's, it's their future. They've got to be sustainable companies. And if they don't move at the times, you know, they might have a, they might have a decade left and then that's it. They've, they've got to be really be thinking about the future and, and the social trends that we're seeing. Well, of course. And if you just look at sustainability, for example, and waste and packaging, now it's expensive to produce a lot of packaging. So brands are very good at, you know, sort of cutting that down also have cost savings. They're more profitable. They're able to pass that on to their shareholders. Um, so canny brands are, um, o- as often as not, leading the way in this rather than just responding to uh, consumer forces. And um, j- just talking about the, the, the experience around food and the kind of the movement to really enjoy food that you, you've been talking about, in your view, is it really about the kind of all about the best quality of food and the and you know, the exciting food. And I'm asking this question, it's a very loaded question, actually, because I'm asking it really thinking about Cereal Killer Cafe, which is all about the experience, but it's, you know, it's a very basic cereal, but it's it's a food experience. Don't call Lucky Charms a basic cereal. That's that <laughs> a staple in my childhood. It's, it's, a, it's a slightly difficult one because I'm, cereal is obviously loaded with nostalgia. Um, so it means a lot more than just puffed wheat and puffed mm. maize to a lot of us. I think I think um, Cereal Killer Cafe is maybe not the best example because it's so loaded with meaning, not only from cereal, but how their owners have responded to media pressure and then, you know, obviously now the unwanting recipients of a lot of attention because they become the signifier of gentrification. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story, that one. I think, um, you know, it's it's got real novelty, but I can't really see them being around in 10 years' time, but who knows. Um, and that wraps us up for our second Marketing Mind podcast. I think there's been some interesting takeaways from our, our conversation here. Looking at the insects specifically, I think once we kind of get over the the disgust barrier and the, the taboo that um, that Sam talked about, uh, you know, it is just an added ingredient that probably comes without much flavour. And if we are going to be in a world with, you know, an extra six billion people, I think alternative protein sources are, you know, that's just the, that's that's what we need. Is that right, Shona? I think it's a sensible, sensible prospect to explore. It may not be the staple of everyone's, um, you know, kind of future food habits, but it's definitely, you know, if you're thinking about how to reduce your meat intake because um, it's just not very efficient, then, you know, perhaps you might think about getting your extra six grams of protein a day from, a pro- you know, a protein bar that contains cricket flour. It's not unfeasible it just may not be a mainstream kind of habit just yet but as we said I mean some of the numbers we're talking about you know the situation in in 10 years of an extra billion people and and uh, you know 70 percent increase in food production required by 2050 something does have to change and we will be seeing alternative alternative food sources whether that's in vitro meat or or crickets um you know our tastes will have to change and brands like you say Sam you know they perhaps will be at the forefront of of um, leading some of that innovation. It won't just be scientists, you know, locked away in the sort of, you know, the World Health Organization. They'll actually, you know, it could be the Mars or the Unilever of this world who are trying to find answers. I'd imagine they will be. And who, who else has that much money to invest in it? Yeah, quite. Well, I'd like to thank um, Shona Ghosh, our senior reporter and uh, podcast editor, and our special guest, Sam Bompas from Bompas and Par. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Nan Davis, and to Something Else for hosting us here today. 
We'll be back next month with a third instalment of the Marketing Mind podcast, uh, where we'll be exploring the topic of post-capitalism. You can get the next episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can join in the conversation on Twitter, following our hashtag MarketingMind, or tweeting at MarketingUK. You can also find out more on our website, marketingmagazine.co.uk forward slash podcast. You've been listening to The Marketing Mind. Thank you.